your host, Grace Swanabo, and it feels very good to be back here talking to you guys. Um, and I'm here with Jack Peterson, our Hello. news director. Hi. Um, today is not going to be a typical episode because most of our reporters are on their holidays. So this one is going to be um, an in, more of an in-vain talk show. So we are just going to be kind of going over some current events. Like today, we're going to be covering the new CDC guidelines alongside the Delta Air consequences. And we're going to be talking a lot about Eric Adams and a little bit about the year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. Yeah, it's so great to be back here, Grace. Thanks for having me on, uh, or, or rather, thanks to myself for putting myself on. <laughs> technically, I have that authority. Anyway, um, yeah, so today is, is going to be a little bit different, like you said. Um, a lot of our reporters are still on their breaks, and uh, we will, in the next coming couple of weeks before the spring semester starts, be hearing from some of those reporters. Again, they'll still be uh, putting together pieces, and you'll still be hearing from some of our finest reporters here on the rundown. But Grace and I are also going to be uh, coming to you here live from New York to bring you uh, the top headlines, the top stories, discussing them. What are our takes on them? What is uh, what are the the hottest controversies right now in the news? And this week, Grace, we we have quite a few of them because, you know, things are changing in New York and across the globe. I mean, the things we're going to talk about the most today. I mean, you you said it already, but, you know, Eric Adams, we have a new we have a new uh, New York City mayor, Mm -hmm. um, which obviously affects us. Uh, primarily, considering we live here in New York City, but is, you know, New York City being the biggest city in the country is, you know, a a pretty big milestone, no matter what he does. And, you know, I know we both have a lot of thoughts on Eric Adams. We're going to get to that. But we uh, the CDC also with these huge surges in the Omicron variant of the coronavirus the CDC has made some very controversial changes in its uh, guidelines, in its uh, its uh, choices of recommendations for how people should be conducting themselves during this Omicron surge. You know, a lot of people have been really, uh, a lot of people have been really scared, really worried about what's happening recently, especially considering how many breakthrough infections are happening with people who are already fully vaccinated, mm-hmm. people who even have booster shots, and who are still getting COVID. And some people even, I mean, it's still it's still very low compared to unvaccinated people, but people who are even ending up in the hospital because of it. And so as far as the, the CDC guidelines themselves, um, as, you, as you most likely know, um, the previous guidelines, the guidelines that CDC has maintained for most of the pandemic have been that if you test positive for coronavirus, no matter what variant, you should quarantine for 10 days, be isolated from people, and uh, come back to work with a negative test, like that that you need to prove that you no longer have COVID, obviously, so that you can't spread it to people. And okay. uh, the controversy really has come this week because um, they've changed that, that, that uh, guidance. They've changed what they say you should do if you have, if you've fully tested positive for coronavirus, right? which means that you can spread it to anybody. Um, they've, they've cut that right in half. So the guidelines right now are that uh, if you're vaccinated, if you're fully vaccinated, you uh, have to quarantine or self-isolate for five days instead of 10. And you can return to work after that, um, which many are, are criticizing as, you know, uh, certainly not enough time based on previous scientific uh uh, findings based on how long it takes for for viruses to transmit, right? How long it takes for them to uh, for you know symptoms to fade is different from how long it takes for you to be uh, able to spread the virus, right? Different things. And um, the the other the other uh, big issue I think that comes with this before we get to the Delta airline aspect of it is that uh, 
a negative test to return to work is not necessarily required. It's not part of these these new guidelines. That's brought a lot of controversy on. And so that's caused today uh, the CDC to come out and say that uh, they are still not requiring proof of a negative test, but that they are strongly suggesting it, which it mm. is certainly not going to cause everybody to go ahead and get a test. I mean, I feel like it's just a way for like big companies to take advantage of those um, kind of wish-washy rules, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what, that's uh, that's the main issue, too, is with with um, Delta Airlines, not the Delta variant, but uh, uh, certainly, you know, something that that's uh, a company that's proving itself to be maybe just as dangerous is uh, Delta Airlines met with the CDC. They had a bit of a closed door meeting um, where this is actually this comes after they published on their website on Delta dot com. They wanted the CDC to consider um, the new scientific data that they say has come out about spreads. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they, their quote was, their, the summary of their request to the CDC was that uh, this request for consideration, this is a quote, aligns with medical professionals and is based on a science-backed analysis of Omicron variant uh, incubation and infection periods. Now, as far as we know, I mean, despite the fact that there are different um, – there are different results for people who are vaccinated and not vaccinated. It's not science hasn't exactly proven that the isolation period can be just cut in half. People spread the virus after five days still. Yeah. And it's like they say it's less transmissible after a certain period of days. But it's like that's not to say that you are completely in the clear. Exactly. I'm sure that there are people who, who can quarantine for five days. Their symptoms are gone. They test negative. I'm sure that happens, mm-hmm. um, especially if they're fully vaccinated, especially if they're a very healthy person. I'm sure that happens. The point is, just like with people who um, refuse to be vaccinated and who claim natural immunity is is how uh, a better way to get rid of uh, coronavirus, just like, like that situation, that can't be applied to all people mm-hmm. and that can't be assumed to be applied to all people, especially elderly people and people with pre-existing conditions, people who um, are not vaccinated, which ultimately, you know, um, where I stand on this is if you haven't gotten vaccinated at this point, it's not uh, anybody's fault but your own if you end up getting sick. But yes. <laughs> at the same time, th- there are still human beings who can mm-hmm. still get sick and die from coronavirus. And the coronavirus can still be spread to them no matter a five-day incubation period. And just, yeah, not to like also leave out like hospitals which are totally overwhelmed like i know in my hometown in phoenix it's like all the icu beds all the beds are occupied and yeah it's hospitals nurses staff is totally overwhelmed and it's just not fair for them to for people to be unvaccinated and to spread the virus and to cause that overwhelming surge yeah and this is a thing that also is uh one thing that i find really concerning personally uh that a lot of people a lot of critics um and a lot of activists have really also stood up against is the fact that, you know, most most businesses these days, uh, especially in New York City, but across the country, most large businesses that are subsidized by government, uh, by government money are um, requiring all their employees to be vaccinated. Um, you know, government officials have to be vaccinated, you know, here in New York, uh, police officers, school employees, fire department, medical officials, what have you, uh, employees of most most small businesses and large businesses alike also have to be vaccinated, right? Mm-hmm. Most people are being required um, to do that in New York. So um, one place that vaccines are not required, though, is uh, is on domestic airlines. And um, when people fly between 
say, uh, a, hot, a certain hot spot. Let's say there's a hot spot in Florida where there's a lot of coronavirus, you know, really increasing. They fly from there to New York. They're not vaccinated. They have COVID. There you go. They've spread it to everybody on the plane. They've spread it to the flight attendants and they've spread it to everybody in New York. Then a flight attendant gets that, gets coronavirus, tests positive, stays home for five days. Then they're asked to come back to work. They don't have to prove a negative test. They're still COVID positive. They continue to spread it to people at the airport. Then the, uh, you know, coronavirus gets on another plane, takes another vacation to a different part of the country. This is not a hypothetical situation. This is happening all the time. This is happening. And I think that's the scariest reason for uh, airline companies to be so lenient because they're the ones who are um, kind of most responsible for spreading it across the country and the world globally. Exactly. I mean, not, of course, saying that airlines should not exist, obviously, is not what I'm (laughs) saying, but uh, airlines... The reason that coronavirus spread from China to America or China to England to America is because people fly in planes. Yeah. And it's like even from my own noticing, it was like I saw people on the plane like with their masks below their nose or like not even even not even wearing masks. Like I had to to tell the person sitting next to me, can you please put your mask up? Because flight attendants were like kind of being pretty lenient with the rules, which is even more scary that they, even though they have these said rules in place, that people still aren't necessarily following them and, you know, also not wearing proper masks. Like, I feel like people should really start double masking again and wearing those um, more valid medical masks. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And if they're not being required to do so on on flights and Mm -hmm. if the people who are working, you know, flight attendant is a job that I have a lot of respect for and that I mm-hmm. f- think is a job that really is not uh, valued enough by their employers. 100%. Um, one of many, obviously, one of most jobs um, under capitalism. But uh, <laughs> the uh, thing about flight attendants is because of how much they're traveling all mm-hmm. the time and because of how long their hours are and how beaten down they are after a day of work. Not only can, if they test positive for coronavirus, not only can it personally affect them a whole lot, you know, maybe their immune systems are weaker. They've been traveling all over the world. Who knows if they've, you know, gotten sick from other diseases before, you know, Mm -hmm. and who knows if they're, you know, getting enough sleep. Who knows if they're, you know, able to maintain a healthy lifestyle flying around all over the place. So then if they get coronavirus, obviously it could damage them quite a bit, but it could also spread to every single one of those um, uh, passengers who is not wearing a mask and, and so on and so forth. So that's that's the main you know, mm-hmm. issue. And do you know how Delta Air is kind of responding to this controversy? Like, have they stepped back from some of their like original guidelines or anything? No, they're they're really holding fast to this mm-hmm. idea um, of the the five days being like a, a medically viable mm-hmm. option. Um, I mean, they published this entire press release here where they're talking about how medical experts have analyzed specific data, talking about how the Omicron variant has a shorter incubation and infectious period, um, which you know, is is not entirely uh, invalid, but it, it certainly is valid that Omicron spreads faster. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly valid that while it might not be as deadly as some other strains, you know, clearly people are not dying at the, exactly the same numbers who are, if they're vaccinated, are dying at the same numbers. Um, it's, it's very much true that just because sometimes it has a shorter incubation and infectious period doesn't mean it always does, right? So people uh, can still spread it to each other all the time if they've quarantined for five days, you know, and CDC, CDC, like they know this, they're, they're, you know, um, the, they're the ones who are responsible for the science that many people, uh, live by and follow very carefully. And also that many people choose to deny. 
Yeah, and it's like I think now they're trying to balance sci- science with um, avoiding a collapse of society. But I feel like in shortening the uh, quarantine period, it's kind of they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot with that. You know, yeah, people are going to get sick and dying, and it's like who are those people who have to go into work early? It's all blue collar workers. It's all essential workers, and those essential workers aren't going to be there for those wealthier people. And you know, there's a like I said, they're shooting themselves in the foot, and I feel like this is, in sense, going to lead to a societal collapse. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly that's the, exactly the thing. Is like that, that sounds really grave. So it sounds silly <laughs> saying, but I don't think we're wrong. No, no, I, I think that things that sounded silly saying them a couple of years ago don't sound that silly anymore. You know, I think mm-hmm. that's true for a lot of things. Yeah. Um, the CDC, like, I mean, this is pretty much exactly what you said, but the CDC said that, you know, the quote was that they they changed their guidelines specifically to keep the critical functions of society opening and operating, mm-hmm. open and operating, right? And right. this is, this was listed as their primary motivation for changing the guidelines, not mm-hmm. because the science has changed, as Dedlow was saying, not because, I mean, uh, you know, Fauci said and, and CDC experts have said that they are keeping people's health in mind by doing this and that this is not divorced from science Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time it most certainly is not divorced from corporate interests and uh, the money that um, you know a a sick even a sick employee can bring to a company like Delta Airlines and so when Delta met with the CDC and requested that they change these these guidelines they were doing so out of uh, out of corporate greed and out of wanting their employees to whether they have to risk their lives or not to return to work as soon as they possibly can. And uh, it's, I, I think it, obviously in a lot of ways, this is a dangerous mindset because not just because of the customers of the airline who are now at risk as well because of corporate policy, but because, you know, like you said, the uh, they'll run out of employees. Eventually they'll run out of employees if they work them to <laughs> yeah, the bone. Exactly. Um, yeah. Well and, said. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> Fauci, um, Dr. Fauci is, uh, he... He took to um, to uh, a an interview um, on Morning in America, and he said he defended his the CDC's um, guidance. And I'm gonna play a clip of that because this is what he said um, regarding the, the newest guidance. people with critical jobs who are infected and required to stay home in isolation for 10 days. So the CDC made a decision to balance what's good for public health at the same time as keeping the society running. So the decision was made instead of having a 10-day isolation, if you are without symptoms, namely you feel well, that instead of being 10, you would stay for five days in isolation And then you could go out into the community and do your job, provided you very consistently wear a mask. And they thought the balance of those two was the appropriate and prudent balance to keep people safe at the same time as you do not drain society of their very critical workers. So I think the main takeaway from this is, yes, obviously, the essential workers that we celebrated throughout the pandemic are called essential workers specifically because most of them are vital to keep a society running, right? Whether it's a, a person who is um, working in a hospital or whether it's a person who's working at a grocery store, right? Yeah. It is essential that those people are able to do their jobs, but it's not so essential that they need to risk their own lives. And it's not so essential that they need to go to work with a virus that spreads very easily, Um 
still inside of them, right? And you'll notice uh, Dr. Fauci said in that clip that uh, provided you are feeling well, you can return to work. Provided your symptoms have uh, decreased or stopped, right? Which um, pretty much everybody I know who has co- who has had COVID recently, and uh, you know who, who's obviously fully vaccinated, but who has had COVID recently, who has been recovering. You know, a lot of people have been getting it. A lot of people you know and who I know have been getting it over this last break. You know, it's been spreading like wildfire. Yeah, I and, think New York was at one point or is still at 50,000 cases a yeah, day. Yeah. And we I, still haven't peaked. Yeah, I might be wrong on this number, but I believe I saw something that said it was uh, it hit 80,000 <gasps> cases on uh, New Year's Eve alone. Oh my God. And uh, it's just how quickly that spreads among people, mm-hmm. especially in a city like this where people are so close to each other mm-hmm. all the time. Um, the, the problem is not just whether or not you feel well. Obviously, that's a problem that we need to that needs to be considered when you're regarding whether if somebody has a cold and and they call out sick because they're in bed sneezing, mm-hmm. they don't feel well enough to to literally operate, you know, uh, the, in the job that they they have. Um, but if somebody has coronavirus, uh, a virus that is much worse than a cold, um, it's it's different. It's not about whether the person feels well. If the person feels well, they can do work from home. You know, mm-hmm. maybe. Uh, we've proven that plenty of jobs can be done from home over the course of the pandemic. That can be done. Uh, if a person feels well, they, uh, you know, there's plenty of things they might be able to do. They could get on calls with people if they need to give guidance, if they're a manager, what have you. They can do some aspects of their job, sure, if they feel well. But they and they should still be compensated properly for those parts of their job as well. But they should not be in the community, as Fauci says. It's not worth the risk of spreading. Yes, yes, 100 percent. Yeah. So the uh, the uh, last thing before we move on to Eric Adams um, that I want to bring up too is uh, the the perspective of the um, uh, Sarah Nelson, a uh, person who is the head of the uh, flight attendants union, mm-hmm. person who I uh, really respect a whole lot. Her her work with flight attendants and and uh, you know ra- in raising their wages and then making sure they're properly um, shielded from the coronavirus especially is uh, this is a quote from her that she said in response to the CDC she said the problem is that we are admitting that we're going to put infectious people back into the workplace or on our planes uh, she says on, on uh, NPR's morning edition we're very concerned about this and we are pressing the airlines to have much better policies than what the CDC is giving us so she also went on to say that people on planes who she's spoken to flight attendants who work uh, consistently on planes are very openly concerned about these policies and are concerned for their health. They've mm-hmm. they've established this. And this is obviously a generalization that can't be made all of the time, but I don't believe that the heads of Delta Airlines who are not on the floor and are not in the planes are as concerned with their health, uh, are, as, are as concerned with the health of the flight attendants who are on the planes. Um, there is a very significant profit motive in keeping planes running, keeping society, those aspects of society running that make a lot of money. Plane tickets are not cheap. Um, people buy really expensive um, food, really expensive, you know, magazines, what have you. Mm-hmm. They sell Apple earbuds for forty dollars in some of these airports. You know, yep. It's some of that's being pocketed. Um, it is not uh, in the corporation uh, Delta Airlines or any of these major corporations' best interests to allow their workers to be sick, and so they're going to pretend that they're not. It's just really disturbing overall. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Jack, for that. Sure. Do you want to move on to uh, our new mayoral elect, Eric Adams? Absolutely. So Eric Adams, actually, uh, mayor uh, non-elect anymore. Oh, wait. 
you, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> he was once a mayor-elect. Now he's moved on to bigger and better things. Yeah. Now he's official. Yes, official. He is. What's the word? I can't He's, think of it. Uh, sworn in. Sworn in. Yeah, there you go. Two sworn words. Sworn in, Mayor Eric Adams. Yes, Mayor um, Eric Adams, the 110th yeah. New York City Mayor, sworn in at the ball drop on New Year's mm-hmm. Eve. Um, yeah. So, h- how was his first day? How is he? How is he doing so far, Jack? <laughs> Funny you should ask, Eric <laughs> Adams. Um, I was on the rundown when uh, back in November when he won the election. Um, I remember that. Yeah, and. Uh, I talked about – I don't think I went as in-depth with all of the thoughts that I have on Eric Adams as um, I you know, could have considering how many thoughts I have about Eric Adams. But um, I talked about how I don't believe personally that he is going to bring a, a any sort of progressive change to any aspect of New York City. I believe most of his policies are quite conservative. Um, especially when it comes to law and order and policing. Yeah, he, well, he was definitely one of the most conservative candidates yeah. who were on the Democratic side. Yeah, I, I would say he probably is the most conservative, um, considering that at least Andrew Yang um, had certain progressive policies, whether or not he was going to follow through on them, you know, by whether or not, I mean, uh, not. Um, but Eric Adams came at this race with a, you know, the same quote-unquote law and order rhetoric that candidates like uh you know like a rudy giuliani have in the past where a there is a a bit of a manufactured um manufactured representation of a crime wave in new york city that was big over the summer when people were starting to get vaccinated people were on the streets again like things were changing there was a narrative about a crime wave that was just it just kept going up people were talking about oh there's so much crime right now there's gang violence there are people being assaulted in the subways happening all the time when the reality of the situation is crime has not risen that significantly mm-hmm. in terms of the numbers. Um, yeah, we, we've seen this pattern over and over again with mm-hmm. like journalism. Yeah, absolutely. It, there's a, it's a very effective technique to get people mm-hmm. to click on an article and pick up a newspaper. It's also a very effective technique, as has been proven. But like I said, like Giuliani ran on this platform. Lots of mayors in the past, uh, especially in the 80s and 90s, ran on this platform um, in New York, especially. And as well as in Chicago and a lot of major cities where there uh, have been crime spikes historically, um, a lot of mayors run on this platform because it's so effective to get people both scared and trusting in a person who says they're going to fix the problem. Yeah, especially a person who says like that he was he has the experience, you know, he was arrested by cops. He was a cop. So I feel like that even more so elects his trust in people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, He was yeah, he was both, you know, he was both a very prominent uh, police officer as well as, yeah, like he's he has been a victim of police violence. He was also, you know, he was homeless as a kid and he used Mm -hmm. that as a very effective way to uh, to put himself, position himself on the working class side, you know, as a candidate, which he's he's not, you know, he's not part of the working class anymore. Um, He lives in a in a house in New Jersey where he very comfortably um, reigns. And uh, when he comes into New York, well, you asked me how his first day was. And uh, mm-hmm. when he comes into New York, things like this happen. Because on on the first day, just literally just hours after he was sworn in, because he was sworn in after midnight at the ball drop, uh, Eric Adams was uh, on a bridge in New York City. And um, he called the cops um, when he witnessed an assault uh, on the on the street below him. And 
he, uh, you know, since he was a former uh, uh, captain of the NYPD, since he is a, a quote-unquote law and order candidate, um, he, I, I mean, I, I think this was a, a good opportunity for him to, you know, show that he, like, you know, quote-unquote trusts the police um, enough to deal with this this crime he sees here. He's going to deal with it, right? He's going to send the cops after the problem. With his, like, you know, platform, that makes mm-hmm. sense as a thing for him to do. I'm not saying it was a publicity stunt necessarily, but I'm certainly saying uh, that it was a convenient time. Uh, um, <laughs> and uh, so Eric Adams called the police and uh, reported the uh, the uh, assault that was happening. It appeared to be a, a fight. Uh, it appeared to be two people fighting on the street with a third potentially trying to break them up is what is what it looked like. People caught this on video. Caught Eric Adams. Uh, Eric Adams' um, camera crew caught it. Eric Adams' camera crew also caught it. Yes, <laughs> for some nice little uh, shots for the New York Post that uh, were on their front page. And um, so he called the police. And the um, the problem with this is uh, that you know, as we know personally, um, being New York residents, and as most people know, who if they live in a big city. Um, I know you're a newer New York resident, but you know what I mean. Uh, it's police officers are not designed. Their job is not designed to solve crime most of the time and not designed to prevent crime most of the time. It's designed to respond to crime and deal with it after. And because of that, um, you know, if you've ever called the police before, you know that police don't they take their time arriving. Uh, they usually are not there until the problem has been solved by some other means. Um, and when they get there, if, you know, the problem is not currently going on in front of you, what do they have to do? They take a couple of testimonies, you know, they fill out a quick report and they will go. And, yeah, maybe, maybe that will follow up on, you know, they have a description of the person now. Maybe if there's a person, you know, running around stabbing people, they now know what that person looks like and they can find them. More often than not, it gets forgotten, though. And, um this is, you know, something that we've come to accept, I think, as New Yorkers, um, mm-hmm. that the police aren't really going to do a thorough job in the in the thing that we have um, that we pay our tax money for them to do. Yeah. It's like the reality is most of it is just desk work, which they're not even that efficient at, you know, <laughs> exactly. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, so Eric Adams uh, doesn't know that, I guess, um, doesn't know this this side of policing. And mm-hmm. um, he called the police. And when they arrived, they questioned nobody. They didn't uh, talk to anybody who was on the scene. The people who had been fighting uh, were already gone at this point. Uh, It was uh, a while later. And um, they, yeah, they came to the scene, walked around a little bit, took a couple notes, and then they left. And uh, so Eric Adams uh, was not happy about this. A couple days later, two days after this, he he said on PIX11, he was asked if he was happy uh, with the officer's response to to the assault. And he said, quote, I think that what happened here, it's crucial that we use this interaction as a teaching moment. The officers, I believe, should have stopped, carried out a more thorough investigation, interviewed people at the scene, and I don't believe they did that properly. He said, we should instruct how we want these jobs handled and how we want them to come to a proper resolution. And I'm going to look at that and make sure we instruct the officers on what my expectations are. Um, he also said they, they didn't do what I believe to be a thorough uh, inquiry. Um, he, but he, he proceeded to say that... Uh, he has the cops back. He said, uh, our officers feel for the most part that we don't have their backs as government officials. And I'm going to say, I have your back. Yet, he also says, you know, do your job correctly. Um, and we need to, to maybe provide different training so they can figure out how to do their job correctly. It's certainly not a 
it's not the the words of a man who really truly understands the history of policing in New York City. Yeah, he was almost shocked that yeah. they didn't do as great of his job as they should have. Right, right. Were you shocked? No. <laughs> no. No. This is this is uh, a quick story. Um, I was in uh, I was like a kid. I was a kid once. This is you how were. the story starts. Yeah, that's the end of the story. Also, oh, um, I was I grew up in, in Brooklyn, and uh, I a pretty you know a pretty uh, quote unquote safe neighborhood. Um, mm. Stuff didn't really happen that required the cops to come by, um, and. At one point, my, I remember my parents calling the police because there was what appeared to be a weapon. I believe it was a sword of some kind or it was like a – what was it? It was like – it was some kind of knife that appeared to be, you know, the kind you use as a weapon. Um, at least this is what it looked like. And it was in the playground. Uh, it was sticking out of a tree. And they called the police on this uh, situation. The There got no response. The police were like – well, we'll be on our way. In the meantime, a kid pulled it out of the tree and started waving it around, swinging it around. Um, and uh, we went home later with the cops still not having come. And probably an hour after that, the sun had gone down. The cops not like ring our doorbell and they come up and they're like, "Oh, were you people who called? You were the people who called Ugh. about the the sword or knife or whatever." And uh, yeah, we were like, "Yeah, that was a couple hours ago, though." And the cops were like, "Okay." Do you have the sword with you right now? And yeah. my cops were like, "No, we didn't. We didn't take it." Uh, and they were like, "Okay, um, well, let us know if you see it again." And they left. These things happen all the time. This is not. This yeah. is a, a relatively Even, minor example. There are examples where people get things stolen from them, where people get assaulted, and nothing happens. Yeah, and this is a nationwide thing. And it's mm-hmm. like I come from Phoenix, where is you know pretty infamous for having bad cops. And I remember there, I have a story as well. My sister was home alone and people broke in. Oh, uh, yeah. Pretty oh scary. God. You know, yeah. the cops came and, you know, they they tr- like. But again, it was after a, a good while and they tried chasing them down and they lost them and then nothing else happened. And those people are just still out there. Right. You know, and that's it. Like, the, it feels like that's what everyone sees as their one job is to stop crime. And like mm. you've been saying, they can't even do that right. They can't even like they're supposed they're supposed to be quick in response. That's why we have nine one one. That's exactly. That's <laughs> why we don't just walk to the police station and yeah. make a complaint. That's why we have a phone number. So the two main problems I think with policing is I mean there are obviously more than two, but the two things that the two areas they tend to fall under are one inefficiency such as this not mm-hmm. doing the part of the job that they are meant to do properly, and two being when they do try to do that part of the job. Uh, the you know the part that could escalate to violence potentially, and they use it in incredibly inappropriate circumstances. Whether it's attacking protesters, whether it is stopping people for um, the color of their skin, whether it is handing out tickets for no good reason, whether it is using physical violence and escalating situations that didn't need mm-hmm. to be escalated, or you know sometimes uh, with fatal consequences. Whether it's busting into somebody's house without a warrant, um, Third Amendment, look it up. Uh, or, you know, what have you. So it's always one of the two. And I think this is something that fundamentally Eric Adams does not understand, despite the mm-hmm. fact that he was uh, the captain of the NYPD. And that's why that's why I feel that he is a somewhat dangerous person to have as mayor, because I think not understanding this fundamental aspect of why we 
why most people in the city do not trust the police um, is 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 a problem. And especially after last year and or, or two years ago now. Oh, my God. 2020. <sighs> after 2020. Oh, existential crisis moment right there. Um, after 2020 and after we all sort of collectively realized there's a problem, you know, as some of us had already realized this, but some people realized it for the first time, started doing things about it. Eric Adams is exactly the opposite of what we should be looking for in a person who is, is putting this initiative forward. Yeah, 100%. Um, unless you have anything, I think we want to talk about his... Yeah. What, anything else you wanted to say? I wanted to say one more thing actually yeah. about is uh, the second day. I believe it was the second day of his of his um, uh, third day of his uh, of his mayoral um, uh, in office in office second day, <laughs> third day in office uh, January third. Um, this is Monday. He um, so UFT the UFT the United Federation of Teachers friends of the show um, requested uh, a remote uh, learning transition due to the rise in Omicron. Mm-hmm. They said they wanted to do a um, they wanted to transition similar to how we did in the early part of a COVID, at least temporarily, mm-hmm. to just online classes because right now in this moment, you know, this week, you know, kids are going back to school at public schools, and um, it's not you know they're still very worried um, about um, about both the staffing challenges about the people who are getting COVID mm-hmm. who are staff and also the kids who are, are not all vaccinated yet. Um, and so, uh, president of UFT, um, Michael Mulgrew, uh, asked Adam specifically to temporarily, um, move to remote learning. And the mayor said that he felt strongly schools should in fact stay open despite the surge and that nothing would change. Uh, his quote specifically was, we are staying open. Um, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen day to day. We're staying open. Um, he said, this is not an unclear message. I am being very clear. We are staying open. And the quote that I found the most perplexing that just, I don't know. I'm just, I'm not exactly sure what he meant by this. And especially considering the consequences, his quote was, um, when a mayor has swagger, the city has swagger. We've allowed people to beat us down so much that all we did was wallow in COVID. It's all we did. And we no longer believe this is a city of swagger. This is a city of resiliency. We're going to survive. You've lost me there. Uh, Eric Adams. Eric, lost Eric there. Adams has lost me there. <laughs> I think there is a positive sentiment buried in there somewhere about how we should be able to move forward and we are a city of resiliency and we're going to survive. But that is buried under a word that nobody has used unironically since 2011 and, uh, and also a lot of platitudes about a pandemic that is not over. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something you could say maybe back in the summer when it looked like the pandemic was going to be over. Yeah. You know, hey, let's move forward. I'm the new mayor. We're going to move. We're going to step forward. And uh, COVID is behind us. Not that it necessarily was, but like we can at least see a future that way. And we should still see a future where COVID no longer exists. But that's not the reality we're in present day. Right. And believing that there should not be new precautions such as moving to remote learning does not assist in reaching that future. I feel like they're just looking at it too black and white because obviously we want to open and we want schools to be in person like as much as possible because remote learning as we've all learned is is not great for kids and it's not great for teachers either um but when you have numbers such as 80,000 alone 
on New Year's Eve, that is simply not safe, even though, though we do have these vaccine mandates and these mask mandates. And it's kind of disturbing with Omicron. A third of people who are boosted still tested positive for COVID. So it's still being tra- it's still transmissible. So what I'm saying is, like, listen to the teachers pro prolong opening if need be um, and watch the numbers. It's that, that simple. Yeah, we, we none of us wanted to be here. It's not like no. none of us were. It's not like any of us were in a situation where we were thinking, you know, yeah, you know, maybe we should have returned to remote learning just like to be safe, not for anything COVID related. We just really feel like we want to do online classes again. <laughs> it's it's solely to protect people's lives. And this is very similar to what we talked about earlier with the CDC, where sometimes the motivation which is a it's it's a in some ways it is a positive you know a desire to get things back running normally which we all want you know universally is is something we should strive for we should be optimistic about things like this but we should not be you know unrealistic and we should not be putting the health of, of a variety of people especially um consistently people who are essential workers such as teachers and such as i mean i guess teachers weren't necessarily the essential workers who were going into school during the pandemic, but still um, people who are who are relied upon to continue doing their jobs at the same rate um, throughout that entire time. I think that's that's where we lose the plot a little bit is when you run. Uh, and I guess I guess in a way, this episode kind of has a, a consistent through line, a consistent theme here. When you combine profit motive with people's lives and people's health, you uh, are left with dead people and no money. Well said. Thank you. I think that was a that was a, one of the most eloquent things I've said in my life. I'm kind of speechless. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Grace, tell us what he's gonna what his plans are. Okay, so uh, his first address as mayor to the New York City citizens, mm-hmm. he said uh, he had an unveiled theme for his first under hundred days, which he is calling "Get Stuff Done." which he very proudly abbreviated as GSD, Mm. which I very highly doubt is going to be picked up and used in common speech by New Yorkers. Yeah, I'm not really (laughs) planning on wearing a GSD um, t-shirt or or a baseball cap. But, you know, to each their own. Yeah, Uh, It doesn't sound like it's not a catchy slogan and it doesn't actually mean anything. But, hey, more power to them. I mean, no. Uh, get stuff done just seems like power. the vaguest thing ever. It's like, yes, I hope you get stuff done. Right. It's your job. <laughs> That's also the problem, too, is like, <laughs> yeah, get stuff done is what a politician, it's a bare minimum for a politician. If mm-hmm. you didn't get anything done, we would consider you a failed politician. But mm-hmm. it depends on what you get done. If you yeah. get good things done versus if you get bad things done. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, Obviously, he has um, come in during a very stressful time. Um, And so his response seems to be a more business-friendly, moderate model. Um, And he describes himself as a a practical and progressive mayor who's going to get stuff done. And Mm. that seems to be um, his big thing. And he said, quote, this will be our New Year's resolution. We will not be controlled by crisis, end quote. Um, and we all know um, New Year's resolutions tend not to be very sustainable. That's true. I'm, I'm, not, say, I'm not saying anything else to add on to that, but... Oh, wait. Do you have a New Year's resolution this year? 
Do you have a sorry? Do you have a currently active New Year's resolution that you're currently still working towards? Be nicer to Jack. Oh, you see, that one's not. It's not going to get you very far. It's going to last very long. Do you have a New Year's resolution? Um. Hmm. That's a good question. Aspiration. What? Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. So the thing about about this uh, this initiative is. I don't think I'm the only one who sees this. And I, I said earlier that I, he's a fairly conservative um, politician for a Democrat, right? Right. Obviously, he is. But that's I, I mean that mostly in his in his uh, his talks about police and his talks about education and a lot of things he says like that. But this this uh, specific uh, quote you just read is kind of kind of rhetorically conservative. It sounds like something a lot of Republicans would say today mm. that we need to do things, achieve things, and we need to not let COVID just scare us and, and you yeah. know, drive fear into our hearts. I mean, he's saying, ah, oh, like, the city is, like, resilient and we mm-hmm. can't let this pandemic define us, but you can't... I, I don't know. There's just something very tone-deaf about that. It's, like, toxic positivity to me. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Toxic positivity. Yeah, I've read a lot of infographics recently on how bad that is, so... It is really bad. I think Eric know? Adams needs to look at take a look at Instagram. I have other comments about that, but for another time. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> next um, week, next week, tune in. We have a segment on toxic positivity. Yeah. Uh, so he released his draft of a recovery plan, which is called 100 Steps Forward NYC, which is about 40 pages of 106 policy proposals. And I've read a solid chunk of it. Um, And essentially, it gives a rundown on policy changes in the city government, public health, safety, housing, the economy. And it's broken down into bigger and smaller steps. Pretty simple, right? Uh, Fix the city. I mean, 106 steps. 106 policies. Policy. Oh, so yeah. they're concrete policies. Okay. Con- con- you, concrete policies. Do you have a couple examples? Yeah. So, like, um, so I think what right now he's really focusing on is police violence, gun violence. He's focusing in on health and, like, specifically the pandemic. He's focusing in on education. And he's also focusing on creating a less, quote-unquote, dysfunctional city government. So, in terms of police violence. Um, so the to address police violence and the rise of gun violence, Adams has suggested a policy that would empower local communities to elect their own precinct commanders and community affairs officers. So to kind of, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, um, uh, you know, the catchphrase we like to use on this show here is uh, fair and balanced. And uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say that I, I think that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any problem with that. I think that I think that all higher ups in policing should be democratic elected by people in the district. You know, I I don't see any any problem with something like that being instituted because that's how accountability starts in in certain areas. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that the people elected will always be great. Obviously, Eric Adams was democratically elected. Yeah. Um, but it is a start. I I, I think that's a good policy. Um, also, I want to say. Um, my dad just texted me. He's listening right now, and he wanted to correct me about that story I said earlier. Oh, um, we've, was, got a, we've got a a live fact checker. Yeah, live fact checker. Hi, um, Jack's dad. <laughs> hi, Jack's dad. He uh, he says that it was actually a machete that we found in the playground. Oh. So it's entirely possible that that machete was simply being used, you know, for innocent purposes such as to cut leaves, you know, to pare down leaves from trees or something like that, or to, you know, Chop whatever. Chop off the head of a toddler. <laughs> Or to chop off the head of a toddler, you know, innocent purposes. But the the uh, you know, 
it it's possible that it was just like owned by the park rangers or whatever. But mm-hmm. the point was that it was there in a place where it wasn't the point playing. of yeah. who had the machete and for what intentions. Mm-hmm. It, the point was the, the the police reaction. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So um, yes, there there's just the update. But anyway, um, I I think that's a good policy. Um, I just don't know how honest it is. Right. Right. You know, it, like on paper, these do look like decent policies. It's just like. Is he going to stick through with them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so another thing he wants to do is he wants to install a system for officers to anonymously report, quote, unquote, bad behavior from, quote, unquote, bad apples, oh, which no. is he didn't say he, that. this is the phrase he uh, used in his um, draft. Yep. Um, and he wants um, reporting to be made easier. And like he said, he was like, it's really hard for cops to report on incidents of bad officers. So he wants to make a system so officers can report their colleagues to an outside system, which in this case would be the Department of Investigation instead of the NYPD to protect whistleblowers and hopefully better expose violent officers. Okay, so the way I see it, we have a score right now of one to one, good mm-hmm. versus bad yeah. policy. Uh, that is that is not, it is pretty naive, um, that policy. You think so? Yes. Um, I don't think he knows that the problem with police coming forward and reporting bad behavior by other cops is not that it's not easy enough for them to, and mm-hmm. it's not anonymity either. He I called mean, it dangerous for them to. Oh, what? absolutely, it's dangerous. Yeah. But dangerous specifically because those who are honest brokers out there in the police force um, who actually would want to report things like that, you know, if they reported publicly and non-anonymously their, uh, I guess you could say, colleagues' uh, misbehavior, violence, um they would absolutely be shunned. This is historically true by mm-hmm. their fellow cops, right? Yeah, and that's but, why they want to make it anonymous. Anonymous, yes, of course. But I think what we're failing to realize here, uh, or what he's failing to realize, is that that's not the only issue with it. I'm sure mm-hmm. that would increase reports. I'm sure they would get more reports of people who, who that's all they needed, the anonymity. Right. But there's also, uh, you know, there's this little, little pesky little thing called the thin blue line that uh, most police officers um, are are consider themselves part of a very tight brotherhood who don't yes. want to betray each other. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the problem is solely a lack of access or an anonymity issue for individual cops. A lot of it, I think, is a, a problem with uh, just actively not wanting to come forward and expose people. They are like a fraternity house, right. you know? They protect their brothers. Yeah. You know, they turn a blind eye. It, yeah, and this happens very, very frequently, even to the point where, you know, it happens so often that there are many public cases of this mm-hmm. where, like, it's publicly known. So how many private cases must there be? Um of, of cover-ups happening within the department solely because they wanted to protect their friends. So I, I just think that he's missing the point with mm-hmm. the uh, reports. The other thing, too, is um, the Department of Investigations, I think that's fair to transfer it over. It shouldn't be involved with NYPD at all. But every time that they've tried historically to um, remove the review process from police, uh, the police department itself, mm-hmm. and they've tried to set up like something else, like an outside force, like the Civilian uh, Complaint Review Board, it ends up either being too tied in to the police and have like, you know, like the, the, the there have historically been, you know, like councils of people voting on um, voting on uh, uh, or like investigating police misconduct that those councils have included current police officers and police chiefs and stuff like that. You know, it's not unbiased. Um, right. It's usually still tied into the government. And so it doesn't always pan out how they expect it to. 
it should at least be attempted. It just doesn't always happen that way. So, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so then another thing he wants to do, so the internal monitoring list. Monitoring? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I just say words, and I'm like, is that a real word? <laughs> <laughs> so he wants to make this monitoring list um, of offending officers um, to be made public. So he wants to create more transparency with the people of um, who are these quote-unquote, bad apples in our system. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. I think that yeah. should be public. I, I know there are some services already that that have, you know, um, in some cities and stuff like that that have some of that information available, but not nearly all of it. Um, so obviously that should be public. Uh, I am of the belief that that should be public and all police body cameras should be public as soon as they are done recording. Um, because... Mm-hmm. If they have nothing to hide, then why shouldn't we publish all of the information that is tied into their work? Um, Unless it's like part of an ongoing investigation where, you know, somebody, some some hardened criminal can't find out about this information as if that happens that much. But, uh, you know, obviously offending officers especially, we should all know that they're offending officers. Mm -hmm. And if any of them still have their jobs, then that's a separate problem. To me, I'm just shocked that this wasn't already something in place. Like, this seems like the absolute bare minimum. Yeah, exactly. And I guess it is his job to address the bare minimum first, but it's like, how? (laughs) It's it's, it's funny how, I mean, it's not not funny because it's expected, but, like, it's funny how often um, when a police officer kills, specifically, like, an unarmed black man... Mm -hmm. um, such as specifically like with Derek Chauvin, yes. um, how right after that happens, it's revealed, oh, this guy has, what did he have, 19 complaints against him? Something like that. This guy has previously killed people. Like he's previously killed uh, people he was arresting, right? It's happened before. And it's like if every single piece of that, inf- like that happens all the time, like the guy who killed Eric Garner and stuff mm-hmm. like that, right? So things like this. Why why wouldn't they all be public so that we can know, you know, if a cop comes up on us and is like, you know, we see their name on their badge, you know, we'd at least know, hey, protect yourself. Know your rights against this guy because he's not going to respect them, you know. It's just awful that we'd even have to have those systems in place where we would have to be mindful of a like a list, a monitoring list and keep an eye out on those things. And it's like, yeah. Anyways, absolutely. We're uh, we're running a little bit short on time ah. here, so uh, maybe we should get to the uh, the January sixth anniversary. Right. Oh, yeah. Unless there are some vital <laughs> points you'd like to uh, also touch on. We can go to January sixth. <laughs> well, see, when we go to sleep tonight, we'll go to January sixth. Actually. Yeah. I don't plan on going to January sixth till the clock strikes midnight tonight. You know what I mean? <sighs> it took me a second a to understand what you were you. saying. That was, haha. Yeah, it's not very it's funny. Not good. Anyways, um, yeah, well, I guess we'll keep an eye out and I will go over some of his other policy changes in another, on another episode, sure. perhaps. Okay, so yeah, January 6th. Um, so today, I think the news was, is that Trump canceled his, um, his uh, press conference at Mar-a-Lago where he was going to speak on the anniversary of January 6th. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was going to speak on on that anniversary. I saw a uh, press release he put mm-hmm. out to his supporters. I believe it was one in an email mm-hmm. um, about why he was canceling it. Do you subscribe to him? Oh, of course. <laughs> I read all of them. I read all of them and transcribe them in a little notebook I keep on my bedside. Um, Cute. And Cute uh, lovely little description. Jack. What? Lovely little description. Oh yeah, of course. Um, 
no, but he sent out an email that uh, in in talking about canceling it, he used most of that space to really, you know, instead of explaining the reasons for actually canceling it, he used it to explain why the Democrats are trying to screw him over again with the uh, select committee to investigating January 6th and um, focused most of his time not on the fact that, you know, maybe he shouldn't have been uh, revering an event that cost five lives. Um, maybe he shouldn't be revering his probably most shameful moment as a president. Uh, mm-hmm. Instead, he, he decided to to own it and say, hey, they should stop investigating me in the email, which I, I feel like is was the sentiment. And um, it's pretty questionable. What was the what was the exact reason he canceled it? Um, I think I think he was golfing with Lindsey Graham. Is that and- what it is? Like a, like a couple days ago, and mm-hmm. they were just really advising him against it. Like all of his closest people were like, hey, this really isn't a good idea. <laughs> it's not a good look. Mm. So instead of doing that, he's going to be attending something that is kind of in vain to a campaign rally in my lovely hometown, Phoenix, which I'm so mm. proud to represent for this. You going to go? Um, oh, of course I'm going to go. I'm going to go on a I'm going to go from straight on a Delta Air flight. Yeah. To, down to exactly. Phoenix to the uh Trump rally where he is going to there speak on uh January 6th. And I I wonder if he's going to mention January 6th mm-hmm. at the rally. I wonder if he's just going to turn that rally into the exact same thing he had planned in the first place. Hmm. It's kind of chilling. <laughs> Quite ominous. Cold the studio, yeah. Uh, Quite Omicron, (laughs) Quite Omicron. Because no one's going to be wearing masks. And I thought that that sounded like ominous. Um, So true. (laughs) We're here for comedy, too. Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) Anyway, it is Um, the one-year anniversary of January 6th, 2021, tomorrow. Yes. Um, Namely, it's January 6th, 2022, you know, a year later. And, uh, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that because of uh, the five people who who perished that day. and how it has uh, it has shaped public discussion and uh, uh, discussions of democracy since I am of the personal belief, and I don't know if this is a hot take, but I'm of the personal belief that there is a little bit too much emphasis placed on the events of January 6th in comparison to the rest of the Trump presidency. Um, oh, you think so? I don't think that it was a surprising event in the least mm-hmm. that that happened. And I don't think that that should have been the indication to people that he um, – is a president who wants to overthrow democracy. I think that should have been very obvious long before that. So the fact that January 6th happened is more of a testament to the fact that th- that he has enough people who are willing to like go that far and also uh, a testament to the failures of a lot of the police officers who were there that day. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and it was just really disturbing to hear, um, you know, the lead of the, um, the National Guard of D.C., um, how helpless they were. Yeah. They're just waiting on the command for three hours and nothing. And it didn't doesn't take that long to get a piece of paper signed to approve for them to come in because, again, this was something that could have been swept up and controlled in a matter of minutes if they were given um, the right uh, direction. Yeah. Um, but it was something like a wildfire. Fire. It just got worse and worse and worse. Um, but, yeah, anyways, today um, Attorney General Garland vowed to hold... January 6 perpetrators quote at any level unquote accountable and defend them uh, and defend democratic institutions um, he said this in a speech marking the anniversary of the Capitol riot and he said that like as long as it takes and whatever it takes for justice to be done so there are about 
2,500 people um, at that rally, or even more so, I mean, sorry, at the insurrection, and about 700 have been arrested. Uh, And these are just the rioters. No one has been charged at the higher levels, and it's still unclear of whether higher level people will be facing any charges. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that's where, um, you know, we're a year after this happened. And obviously, since then, you know, Trump was unsuccessfully impeached um, again. And uh, and, you know, since, you know, Biden has come into office and, and you know, they've opened this committee and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But and, and like you said, they have arrested several hundred people um, in connection with with being there. But that's really all that's happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I, when I was saying earlier that I, I don't think this is the, um, you know, it, it's not as if this is the most dramatic thing uh, in his presidency. I didn't mean to to minimize just how awful it was, uh, the event that happened in and of itself. The people who were there and who were destroying, you know, property at the Capitol absolutely should be held accountable. And like you said, the most important thing is not just that the individual people who were brainwashed by conspiracy theories into committing violence – that not that they were being held accountable, but specifically that the people who uh, brainwashed them, people who influenced them with the idea that Trump had won the election and who influenced them with several uh, other conspiracy theories since then and before then, um, incited them to go and, in fact, and march on the Capitol. There has been no accountability at all for mm-hmm. the people who are in the higher up positions, for the Trump family, for Rudy Giuliani, for uh, the senators and House representatives who um, – both incited the riot and uh, and uh, took rioters on tours of the Capitol. Um, there has been no accountability for the Capitol police officers who took photos with the rioters mm-hmm. and who opened the gates for them. Yep. Um, there has been no accountability uh, for really anybody except for the individuals uh, who committed the violence, which are absolutely culpable. But this is just another example of the people who are— But it's are, like those numbers are huger. Like. Mm-hmm. Th- Huger. Huger. That's a word. Yes. Yeah. Like their numbers are massive. Arresting all of them isn't going to make much of a dent in preventing something like this from happening again. It's, yeah. You have to hold the people at, at the top accountable. Exactly. It's simple it's, as that. Yeah. It, it's another example, I think, of, of um, you know, people who are at the lower levels um, committing crimes being prosecuted far more than people who have privilege committing crimes, mm-hmm. crimes that also were responsible for causing those uh, crimes committed by the lower level people, you know? Yeah. Um, most of the people who marched in the Capitol were uh, working class, you know, uh, fairly uneducated people who were following the orders of a dictator and the dictator is still at large. And those people mm-hmm. are mostly going to jail because they followed orders, you know? Those orders were horrific, mm-hmm. and but it is not you know, uh, it is not always the fault of the sheep. Sometimes it is the fault of uh, the shepherd who is leading them to the slaughter. Yep. I don't think that metaphor made any sense, but I, I am going to stick with it. <laughs> no, no, you 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 stuck the landing. <laughs> I stuck the landing. <laughs> it's a little messy, but you got there. <laughs> more like I just committed to finishing the sentence. You committed to finishing the sentence, which is more than I could ever do. Is it? So that's a good example. <laughs> yeah. And did you read the like texts that were like released recently of see like everyone texting Donald Trump and texting Mark Meadows? Yeah. Like, hey, this is this is pretty bad. Yeah. You, you want to do something about it? 
just like radio silence. Radio silence. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> I get it. Radio silence. Yeah. Radio. Uh, um, and absolutely. And that Trump still has control over a lot of these politicians. And it's like they can't even testify anymore. Like Mark Meadows, you know, he released his book. What's it called? Like Chief of Chiefs? So, I think that's <laughs> Jesus. Chief of Chiefs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Go um, ahead. And how he um, kind of revealed to Trump, and Trump like had you know he was like publicizing this book, like yeah, everyone go read it, but you know he's famous for not reading. Mm-hmm. So you know when it was revealed that he had tested positive for COVID before the the debates, I think he got pretty mad yeah. um, at Meadows, and I think he threatened him. So like kind of soon after that whole debacle, he refused to continue testifying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, well, I mean, of course, he doesn't want to testify. And he, you know? Yeah, I wanted to also file a lawsuit against the J6 community. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, I I would love to I would love to see the contents of that lawsuit. I, I don't mm-hmm. know what the argument is. Um, I think you, I don't think that there is a, a legal statute for witch hunt. I don't think you can claim lawsuit. There, yeah, is there on. is there a legal term for witch hunt? I don't like, think so. I don't, yeah, conspiracy to. Slander or something? I guess. I, I don't think he's going to win that. Is there a, yeah, a, a term for pushing my buttons? I don't know. <laughs> I just really, pushing I just really don't like these guys, you know? Yeah. They just really annoy me. They grab my really gears. They annoy me. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to sue them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, we've gone over an hour at this point, oh. and so I um, think it is. it should be uh, probably time to wrap up, and I'll let you close out, but I just want to say thank you for having me, and uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, we'll be back next week. Same time, same place, Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, WNYU 89.1 FM, WNYU.org, online everywhere, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Stay tuned for all the great music shows later on tonight. Thanks for getting all of that out of the way for me. Appreciate it. Yeah, you've been listening to our first rundown of the year, and I'm so happy to be back, and I'm so happy to have you on, and I hope you're back with me next week. Now I'm leaving. Oh. I'm out of here. <laughs> okay. I'll be back. Anyways, on that note, we're going to go. Thanks so much for tuning in. I've been your host, Grace Wanabo, and this has been The Rundown here on WNYU.org. Yes, The Rundown. Um, on WNYU.org <laughs> and 89.1 FM. If you like what you rusty. heard and you want to hear something different. <laughs> you can listen to us. You can email me at news at WNYU.org. Well, that's Thank actually, you very that's much. That's me, that? though. I don't know if people know this, but that's my email. Yeah. Yeah. So you can get all the um, criticism, and I don't oh, have to read it. That makes sense, actually. Um, I had a bit of a brain fart there. I don't, I don't think I remembered the, the sign-off, and everything just kind of mixed around in my brain. Well, you're used to that, though. I'm kind of used to that, so this is nothing new. Right. Professionalism, we don't know her. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know her. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I don't either. Um, at least you're, you're, you're a bit more articulate about it. Anyways, um, what are, what are what are our next podcasts, Jack? Do we have any new podcasts for we do, in fact, everyone today? Yeah. Um, so uh, so the really cool thing about our podcasters here on WMIU is that several of them have decided to continue doing episodes throughout the winter break. And right now, you can stay tuned for an all new episode, episode nine of But Why the But Why podcast uh, with Nita Thadani and uh, Gaia Malin. And you can also stay tuned for Beautiful Names, Beautiful People with Megan Akakubal. After that, so. Uh, yeah, those podcasts will be right now. And like I said, stay tuned afterwards for some great music. Thanks for listening.